Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Adam, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here today. So where are you in the world at the moment? I'm based in the greater New York City area. The greater New York City area, which I'm guessing with COVID traffic's not too bad these days, right? Not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, it's been pretty good the last couple, uh, last two years for sure. As things recovered in New York, I haven't been to New York since before COVID, so I don't know what's happening there. Mm, yeah, yeah. Things have recovered really well. I think businesses are back and running. There's a large number of people who are going out and about and getting to visit different places. Um, so I think life is coming back slowly to New York City. Okay, well, I wish you guys good luck. You know, New York's one of the great cities of the world, if not the Absolutely. greatest. Absolutely. So speaking about New York, right? When obviously, you have a wide ranging career, but I was talking to an executive client who's very senior in the insurance industry and about to retire. And one of those things I've always admired about this guy is that every year he has his big parties to celebrate his anniversary with his wife. And yeah, he's just yeah. one of those people who's always surrounded by family and loved ones. Mm. But when we we're talking about his retirement, he told me something very interesting. He told me, Michael, you know, one of the things I need to do when I retire is change my life because I'm a very lonely man. And I thought to myself, mm. why? You're a, you're a lonely guy. <laughs> and he yeah. pointed out something very interesting to me where he said that, He's surrounded by many people, but he has connections with no one. Mm, wow, wow. And this made yeah. me think about your work because that's what you touch on. So as a starting point there, I'm guessing this is a problem many people experience. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think it's a big part of why we do the work that we do at my firm. We're really here to help leaders own their authentic selves and become the leaders that they want to be for the future. And a big part of that is relationships and connections that you build with others. Yes. And so I think it's very important for leaders to not only surround themselves with great talent, but build really strong partnerships with their people. Yeah. Do you see this as something that has become worse with COVID as the reliance on technology has picked up? Absolutely. So I, even before COVID, I think the reliance on technology, we are connected now more than ever before, but we're not really truly building relationships um, more isolated, I would say. And so COVID just exacerbated that and made it more challenging for people to build successful and sustainable relationships. And when you say connected, you mean technologically connected, but not right. emotionally that, connected. That's right. Yeah. Not relationally. That's correct. So how does one self-diagnose their level of connectivity? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, it goes back to really an understanding of first how you're wired as a leader and what's most important to you. Yes. To drive connectivity, you really have to an understanding of your leadership style, the way that you come across to others, the impressions that you leave on others. And so I think it's very important for people to understand that when you're building relationships in a work setting or in a personal setting, you have to get clear on who you are as an individual, and that will translate into how you connect with people. Okay. So someone listening to this let's say on a weekend, and they want to go in on Monday morning and improve the level of connectivity to have better relationships, what can they do? Yeah. So there's really five key skills that make up what we call relational intelligence. And that is the ability to successfully connect with people 
and build strong, long-lasting relationships. And the first skill of our model, our framework is called establishing rapport. And this is really about one key thing. It's the ability to create a positive initial connection with another person. Yes. So I would encourage listeners if they're trying to come back into the office and really have um, a positive connection, it's really about the energy and the enthusiasm that they bring to conversations. Are they making a good first impression on others? Are they looking to draw people into the conversation by asking questions, by finding common ground? So that would be the first place that I would say they can start. And do you find this is a capability that would be required to build connectivity across regions and cultures, or it's mostly Western-centric? No, it's across regions and cultures. And any culture, there are different norms for that culture. You take the Middle East versus Asia versus yeah. North America. It's going to be different how you establish rapport, what the customs are, what the beliefs are, what the cultural yeah. factors are. But that is universal across the board. People need to have an initial establishing rapport moment to f- initiate that connectivity. So establishing report is universal, but the mechanism and rituals will differ. That's correct. And do you have some examples of techniques one could use to establish reports? So assuming I'm in a meeting or I'm meeting someone for the first time, what would I do there? Yeah, so really first, it's about making a good first impression. Um, okay. It goes from the way you're dressed, your appearance, your posture, um, eye contact. Eye contact is very critical. Are you able to truly look into someone's eyes, hear what they're saying. They say the eyes are the pathway to the soul. So I think really how you're able to connect there, but it goes beyond eye contact to verbals and body language. Are you leaning into the conversation? Are you using your hands in a way to communicate engagement and interest in what the other person is saying? Um, There's also the piece around using humor. Now that depends on different cultural aspects, how humor is used, but the ability to make someone laugh and to enjoy the conversation, that's very important as well. Is it correct to say building report is a way of showing someone you're sincerely interested in them? Yes, absolutely. So there's a thread that underlies all of the relational intelligence, the five skills, and that is authenticity. And so you have to authentically connect with someone and you do that through the way you connect with them. That makes sense. So this would apply with to any relationship, even personal, right? That's correct. Yeah. Romantic relationships, marriage, friendships, family relationships, establishing rapport is a critical first step of relational intelligence. Okay. So I've been through your work. I've read your book and so on. I know the next step is understanding others, Yeah, but it yeah, sounds to me like yeah. that's one of the most difficult steps because usually people tend to focus on themselves. That's right. <laughs> that's right? right. Usually, that's right. usually so focused on how do I look? How am I sitting? It's hard to understand the other person because you have to get out of your head first. That's right. Yeah, there's so much to that to, to that piece. But understanding others is really the ability to be intentional about putting in the time and effort needed to get to know someone on a deep level. And so there are different factors that you need to do that. And I think one of the biggest ones is having a good emotional intelligence. So understanding your own feelings and your own emotions to the point that you raise, you know, being able to step outside yourself and acknowledge where you may be feeling excited or nervous or timid. Um, So having good EQ, but it's not just about you, it's understanding other people's emotions in the moment as well. Can you read their sense of excitement or frustration or how are those dynamics playing into the conversation? Yeah, so one of the most common ways to understand others is to ask questions, obviously. But I was thinking about this and would it be fair to say, it's not about asking questions, it's about making the person comfortable enough to answer your questions. That's right. Yeah. So active listening is a really important skill and the ability to be curious and inquisitive. 
Because I've seen people where they, they go in with a checklist of questions. Yeah, yeah. But they haven't done the part earlier to build report. They haven't put the person at ease. Yeah. And yeah. the process of asking questions becomes kind of an invasion of privacy, for lack of a almost better ro- Almost robotic. Like, yeah. Robotic, but it also makes the other person uncomfortable. Like, why are you asking me these questions? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. seen that play out in actually executive meetings where I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, why are you doing this? You know, you don't have a yeah. connection with the person yet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important. It's why establishing rapport is so critical. You want to put the other person at ease, make them feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And questions need to form organically. Um, yeah. I'm a big believer. The work that we do at our firm, we do something called executive assessments where we help companies hire senior executives for key roles. And part of our interview process is we do the leadership experiences interview, we call it, where we get a deep dive into learning a person's leadership journey and their life story. And so we have some starter questions that we begin with, but really great and most relationally intelligent leaders ask probing questions based on where the conversation naturally and organically flows. And so that's a skill that people have to practice. You don't learn this overnight. Um, and as a leadership advisor, management consultant, I've had to develop this skill over two decades Yeah. to make a conversation feel very natural and organic. I think the most important thing to realize is that you have to start. It's going to be a bit messy and rocky when you begin, but it's something you develop over years. But if you never start and just read about it, you're never going to yeah. become good at it. That's right. That's right. And the whole piece around empathy comes into play, too. If you want to have a conversation, you get to know someone on a deep level. um, It's not just about the questions you ask, but it's how are you tapping into putting yourself in another person's shoes? Yeah, I think that's right. I think intent is very important and people can read intent. That's right. That's right. You know, I've just went through shopping for a car. And I can see that salesman is not really interested in me. Just (laughs) want some information to know how to price this car, right? There, the intent is clearly transactional and you don't really want to share the information with him. You know, it's very funny. I bought a new car last year. I bought a Mercedes and I was going through the process going to Audi and BMW and I chose Mercedes because there was more of a concierge. They, they, they wanted to get to know you as a person and not just sell you a car. It wasn't car sales mini. It was more about what is the need for this automotive automobile in your life? And where are you going? What are the things you're going to be doing? So I felt, again, this salesperson did establish rapport. They took time to understand me and my needs, not just try to sell me what was on the lot that day. It's interesting you say that because I also bought a car recently. And the way I made the decision to buy the car had nothing to do with the car, really. It's the salesperson. Yeah. And when I walked in, I didn't have an appointment. One of the most junior salesperson found me and wanted to know if I need to be shown around. And this guy was not pushy at all. He was just showing me how the things work. He didn't even know how things worked because he's so yeah. new. He's only been there two weeks, but he wasn't pushy. He wasn't trying to force anything at me. And he eventually got the deal and the commission. And I'm pretty sure people are wondering, how did this two-week salesperson land this deal? Mm, but he was able yeah. to build a relationship. I trusted him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's critical. We're going to talk, we could probably, we'll talk about trust in a little bit as one of the other skills, but that's critical. Absolutely. But here's the thing about trust. Um, he had sincerity about him. It wasn't that he was trusting me because he had knowledge of the car. He literally couldn't do many things in that car. But the point is I trust him because I didn't feel he was forcing me to do something. And one of the points I'm making to the listeners here is that when you're trying to build trust, it's about authenticity, about intent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we tend to forget that. So let's talk about step number three, which is embracing individual differences, right? This is a difficult one and a tricky one, I think. In your experience here, what are some of the caveats we need to watch out for? So really here, you know, embracing 
think individual differences is the ability to acknowledge and accept that everyone comes from different backgrounds and experiences. And so it's about having a favorable reception towards people who think, act, and behave differently. And so, you know, a lot of the watchouts here are really being able to get out of your own cultural up back, your upbringing and your background, and really the, this idea of diversity of thought. The idea about wanting to be around people who are different, whether that difference be race, ethnicity, gender, cross-cultural, spirituality, religion. Um, there are things that people need to think about when they're looking for diversity of thought. And it really stems from wanting to have people around the table or around the room that are different from you. But I mean, this is easier said than done. Most people I know don't embrace diversity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they'll absolutely. say it, but, but if you watch them when they think they're not being watched, you'll see them put up a wall against diversity. Yeah, I think that's very critical. We see in our firm, for example, uh, I have a boutique leadership advisory firm and we, again, we espouse diversity. We just don't talk about it. And so yeah. the people that I hire into my firm come from different backgrounds. I have um, black, whites, Hispanic, Asians. I have different cultures on my team. Yeah. And so that brings about diversity of thought. So I think if you're a leader, not just to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, it's around really putting it into action. And do you have people in your organization or in your business, regardless of where you are across geographical regions, do you have people who think differently so they can bring creative and innovative ideas to the table? That makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about the corporate world, right? Because most of our clients are senior executives in industry and senior people in consulting. Yeah, yeah. Many companies talk about diversity, but for them, it's simply about racial diversity. Yeah, yeah. They'll be hiring people that look different, but all went to the same school. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that seems that's not diversity at all. No, no, it's not. It's, it's a not. type of diversity which should be embraced and applauded, but it can't be the end game for diversity. No, no it's, it's one of the factors. I mean, the other factors, gender differences, I think that's another piece beyond racial ethnicity depending on where you are in the world, sexual orientation is another big critical one. Um, spirituality, faith, and religion, that is another big one. Um, there is now a big, at least in North America, around neurodiversity and mental health. Last month was Mental Health Awareness Month in mm -hmm. the United States. And so the appreciation for people who have those um, things in their life as well is really important. Yeah. So a lot of the discussion around diversity set by Western companies yeah. who, because of historical reasons, tend to be biased towards one type of diversity. Do you think yeah. companies are missing the trick in terms of ignoring certain areas where they could introduce diversity? Yeah. So again, it's how, at least in North America, what I've seen the last two years since the social justice in 2020, it's become less about diversity and more about inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so inclusion is really about, are you able to make everyone feel like they are valued and appreciated? There's this, uh, this famous saying that diversity is inviting people to a party. Um, equity is inviting people to dance at the party, but inclusion is inviting people to help plan the party. And so like inclusion, that. yeah. So inclusion is really about getting people to feel that they are part of the mix. And so you can do that with different types of races, ethnicities, spirituality, cross-cultural factors, make people feel like they are valued and important and that their contributions matter. What about developing trust? That seems to be one that sounds very nice. Everyone yeah. talks about it. Yeah. But yeah. when you actually talk to an executive, I speak to them all the time, they'll tell you, well, I don't really trust the person, but we have an alignment of interests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I'm working with them, but I don't really trust this person. In fact, one of the techniques that I know 
we also teach this to executives is that if you don't trust a person, have an alignment of interest. So they're going to do what's in your best interest and you're going to do what's in their best interest. Yeah. So yeah. there's no trust, but the way the system is set up, they're not going to hurt you. So yeah. coming back to trust, yeah, I see this a lot with executives where there's no trust, but an alignment of interest. How do you truly trust someone? Assuming, yeah. you know, we've done all of the previous steps, but how do you truly trust someone? How do you know they are trustworthy? Yeah, that's a great question. So first off, developing trust is the most important skill in the relational intelligence model. Yes. And we define it as the ability to be vulnerable and take a risk to be exposed to the actions and behaviors of others. And so that's a pretty depth, detailed way to think about trust. Like you said, most people are transactional or most people have difficulty trusting. So there's really three or four things that you need to do to develop great trust. I think one in the book, I talk about the mirror test. You really need to first truly understand and trust who you are, your values, your strengths, your opportunities, getting clear on what's most important to you. Because if you don't trust who you are as a leader and as a person, it's hard to do that and to extend it to others. Um, once you have that, it then becomes what we call the bank account of trust. Mm -hmm. And so are you making deposits, this idea of intentional generosity? We are firm believers when we think about trust at our firm and when we consult to clients, the trust must be extended and not earned. Um, and that's a difficult concept for a lot of senior executives to wrap their head around because they are trying to understand their people. Um, but if you extend trust, you create a sense of psychological safety where your people can be more trustworthy. Um, you asked the question on how can you make sure, we call them the underlying aspects of trust, the five C's. So when you're building a relationship with a colleague and you're determining the trust, you have to look at things like competence. Can you trust that your person has the skills or the abilities to do the actual job? Commitment, are they going to honor their commitments to you? If they say they're going to deliver something by X date or they're going to commit to something, will they stand by that? Consistency. Do they show up in the same way day in and day out for the work that you're doing together? Um, character, do they have good ethics and integrity? Can you trust that they're gonna do the right things for your organization? And then courage, do you trust that these people are going to say the things that need to be said or, or help the business move forward, even if it's going to be a difficult conversation or a difficult thing to address? So the importance of trust is based on this concept of relational reciprocity. Trust is a two-way street. So you can't really develop trust if you are extending all the energy and the other person is not. You said something very insightful and I build on it. I think it's useful for the listeners. Many people talk about whether, let's assume there's two people, Amy and Mark, right? Yeah. Amy would think, is Mark trustworthy? Yeah. The way you frame this right at the outset <laughs> is that if Amy doesn't know who she is, it's yeah. hard for her to build a trusting relationship. That's right, that's right. So rather than thinking about whether Mark is trustworthy, it's better to think about whether I, assuming I'm Amy, can actually build a trustworthy relationship to begin with. That's right. That's exactly right. And many people don't think about it that way. They just assume they are the party that's right. That's right. And the other one has to prove something. That's right. That's right. And if you're going to truly build life-changing, dynamic, long-term relationships with people, the trust has to be extended. You have to show that you are going to take a risk. This is why it's taking a risk and being vulnerable to someone. Um, vulnerability is a very key thing here that I think a lot of senior executives struggle with. The, the piece that's tied to that, and I see this more with senior executive men, regardless of culture than women, yeah. is this idea of pride or arrogance. Yeah. There's a sense that I have to be right or I have to know the best way. And to be vulnerable, you really have to be humble as a leader. And humility is a skill set that I think a lot of leaders struggle with because you have to act and behave in a certain way to move up in an organization. And once you get to the senior ranks, 
what worked before is not going to work now. You have to get things done through people, not do things on your own or be a strong individual contributor. And so that's where the vulnerability comes into play. Yeah, you talk about humility and so on. I have a slightly different way of thinking about it, but not different from you, just framing it differently. Sure. The way we think about it is it's about putting the needs of the organization before yourself. If you mm, are yeah. very egocentric, you know your decision is not the best, but you also know you don't want to ask other people because it makes you look bad, but you're willing to accept a suboptimal decision that's going to hurt the company for your ego. Yeah. And it comes from the teaching of Marvin Bauer, but many people talk about this, but the bottom line is that what you say is very true, whereby ego is not just a soft thing. It actually has a material impact on the performance of the business because it precludes you from getting the best answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And oftentimes we actually don't think about that. And I've seen people, I'm sure you've seen them as well, make terrible decisions because of their ego. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Terrible, terrible decisions. They damage relationships with their direct reports, with their partners. Um, I'll give you a great example. I'm working or was working with a leader last year in the uh, insurance, reinsurance industry. And this leader was brought in to build out an analytics practice for the organization. Yeah. Uh, he was brought in as a subject matter expert. This organization never had a data and analytics practice before. And he thought his mandate was to come in and educate his colleagues about why data and analytics was so important. Yeah. He never took the time to establish rapport or understand his stakeholders or embrace individual differences. And so never developed trust with his peers. Um, he would go into meetings and dictate what was needed to be done in their line of the business without even learning what their business actually did. And so they had me come in to do a coaching engagement with this leader because he wasn't getting the traction that he needed with his stakeholders. Yes. Uh, and we came in and we did a 360 assessment and it was very, very clear that he wasn't interested in learning and understanding and building relationships. He wanted to let them know why his approach was the best and why analytics was important. And when I sat with him to give him the feedback, the pride came out right away. Well, these people are wrong. They don't understand what I'm trying to do. They don't understand what I'm trying to build. And he eventually was let go by the company because he couldn't make the transition from getting out of what he thought was right and listening and gathering feedback and input from others. Yeah, that's a great story. I've also experienced something similar because we deal with a lot of consultants and there are different levels. But if you look at senior partners who are the best in the world at what they do, and I don't mean they're just good, they are the best in the world, they are the recognized authority on the subject. When you speak to them, they don't pretend to know the answer. That's right. They actually go into every conversation. When you tell them something, they'll think, why are you saying this? What can I learn from this? But then as you go more and more junior down, the person wants to be the authority. Yeah, yeah. They want to tell you what they know as opposed to learning. You know, we talk about trust a lot, but one of the things I've seen is that if you are willing to learn from someone, that's right, that's right. You can build a lot of trust with them. Yeah, that's so, so good. I think the best consultants that I've worked with, the rainmakers, the ones who lead their companies, the senior partners, they bring a spirit of intellectual curiosity and they bring a spirit of wanting to be a lifelong learner. Um, I've built some great partnerships with my clients over a decade, two decades, because because I'm not the expert in whatever my client does, whether they're a CEO of a consumer products company or a senior vice president of sales in an insurance company. 
I always know that they're going to teach me something and I'm going to learn something by working with them. Um, my expertise is around leadership. And I believe there are certain leadership principles that are universal mm-hmm. um, and, and those things apply. But I come into situations wanting to learn about my clients, their business, who they are as people. And that's what really gets the traction. We'll probably talk about in a moment, the fifth skill, cultivating influence. That is the most powerful skill, but it only happens if you're able to build a relationship and you do that by being curious and by wanting to learn and not by wanting to tell people what you know. There's another famous saying, Andrew Carnegie said, you can build stronger connections and relationships with people in two months by asking questions than by getting people to listen to you in two years. I actually like that. And I've seen the best leaders always ask questions. In fact, the best leaders I've seen, CEOs of you know, Fortune 100 companies, there was one guy I remember, he looked like he was not a CEO. <laughs> he used to wear these chinos and this rumpled jacket and he'd always carry this moleskin book with him. That's all he ever carried. Mm. And every time he visited the site, and this one I was a consultant, he used to travel with him. Whenever he visited the site, he wouldn't tell them what to do with ask a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it goes back to understanding do. others. It goes back to understanding others and being curious and inquisitive. Yeah. And many people don't do that anymore. They believe authority comes from being an expert, knowing the answer and getting people to do what you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, cultivating influence is the final skill of relational intelligence. And that is the ability to have a positive and meaningful impact on the lives of others. And so manipulation, controlling people, authority, you don't get long-term sustainable results from your people when you do that. You may lead through intimidation or fear over a short period. I think of leaders who are Machiavellian or narcissistic. Um, During times of change or adversity, they can drive their agendas because the stability is not well with the organization. But once you get people thriving and delivering on what they need to, your influence and your ability to get things done through others is more about the impact you have on them and less about command and control. Yeah, I mean, there are times, as you say, when you need to be tough with people, Yeah, but it's not a long-term plan. Yeah. You know, I've done a lot of turnaround work for state-owned companies and you have to go in there, fire a lot of people. You've got to impose enormous controls, but it's a moment in time. That's right. That's so right. Absolutely. Moment in time. You're basically creating the cash position so that you can nurture the people that you are keeping. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to this is going to be a dictatorial way of running things. And some companies I know have done well over a period. But what happens is that when leaders change, they've never built the systems and processes for the companies and the employees Mm. to do things by themselves. Yeah, yeah. And companies really suffer. So let's go into the last one, right? The last one is very interesting for me, which is, cultivating influence. So how do you define influence? Yes, that's a very key thing. So we define it as the ability to have a positive and meaningful impact on the lives of others. Um, This is about putting people and culture first before you drive results. Now, people define influence in different ways. And this is why I wanted to give you the definition first, because some people view influence as getting other people to do what you want. I say that is more control or top-down authority. It could be manipulation. Um, to truly influence and have an impact on your people, you have to want the best for them because mm-hmm. ultimately if you are putting people in culture first, they will drive your performance. What our research has shown on relational intelligence over the last two years, and we've conducted research both in the US and in Europe, is that leaders who put their people first, um, it drives higher employee engagement, it drives greater organizational commitment, and it leads to stronger financial profitability over time. 
And so that is how we kind of think about it at a high level. Yeah, I like to think of influence as getting people to want what you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because they need to be self-driven, right? Yeah, that, that becomes more about self. Yeah, it's more self-serving. And that's the difference between um, authoritative leaders and servant leaders. Servant leaders want to bring the best out of their people. They understand that if they do that, their people will drive the best performance for their organizations. But it's a paradigm shift that you need to have in order to think, if I develop my people and I sow into those relationships, they will drive the business. They will help me accomplish my goals or my objectives yeah. if I'm a CEO or if I'm a head of a function or business unit. Yeah, I remember working once with the head of an investment bank. And what I found interesting about this leader, and this is many years ago, um, is a lot of companies tell you about how they're able to motivate and connect with employees. Mm, yeah. But if you look at the incentivization structure, it's mainly because they're the highest paying in the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then I, I remember working with this guy who, who deliberately did not pay a mm. premium. He actually paid a discount okay. because his view was that we're going to teach them skills that are going to create value for them later in life. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm really, it's really great you're saying that. So I built a boutique management consulting firm over for the last eight years. Um, I spent the first decade of my career working at a global management consulting firm, one of the top firms in the world, working with CEOs and senior executives. And I wanted to build a firm where we focused on diversity, as we talked about, not just diversity as an idea, but having a firm of people who were diverse. Um, I also wanted to build a firm where people felt that they contributed from day one. And I'll give you a perfect example. I brought on a leader last year to build out, we're building a relational intelligence test right now. Yep. And so in several months from now, leaders will be able to take a test to see where their relational intelligence is. Now, this leader had a subject matter expertise in data analytics and building tests, mm -hmm. but he wanted to learn and develop as a leadership advisor. And so from day one, I built a partnership with him where he knew he was an, on equal standing with me. We're very diplomatic here. And so even though I was his manager, quote unquote, I valued the subject matter expertise that he brought to the firm that I do not have. And so having that relationship started early on and we established rapport and understood each other and all the steps we've talked about already, but he was able to feel that he could become the best version of himself and learn and develop in a safe, nurturing environment. And he's thrived now. It's been a year into him being an employee of the firm. And I've really seen him blossom and grow because of the mentorship that I put in and not just wanting him to achieve certain goals. His KPIs were around building the assessment and delivering on certain outcomes, but that was always in the background. I put his development first and his growth as a consultant, and those goals happened along the way because of that. Yeah, that's a very good example of how to put that into practice. That's right. That's right. Because most people, as you know, and as you know, the clients you have, whenever they're doing anything, it's it tends to be self-serving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even though the right wording is used about connectivity and they want to build relationships, they want to mentor, motivate. And when you really sift through the incentive structure and how things are set up, you can see what a company is really like. In fact, I would say that forget about the org structure and what they say anyway, just look at the incentivization model. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, can you talk about you know this podcast being in different regions across the globe? Mm -hmm. In the US, we've seen the great resignation the last you know year or so. Are you seeing that in other parts of the globe where this idea or concept or is that just a North America thing? We're not seeing it in other parts of the world. Yeah. In fact, yeah. in some parts so of the world, because of the contraction in the economy, there's not enough jobs available. 
Yeah, so that's a fascinating thing why that's different here in North America. But what we found in the last seven or eight months, um, there are more job opportunities now than ever before. And part of that was sprung on by the pandemic yeah. and people having options. But what we have found, and you're talking about kind of self-serving or comp structures, people are leaving jobs now, not just because of pay, title, promotion, but they're leaving jobs. There's a saying, people don't quit jobs, they quit their bosses. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of people quit organizations now because they're not getting the development or the focus on relationship development from their senior leaders. Um, and what we're seeing here in the United States is a lot of it is tied to the generational differences. Uh, I just wrote an article a couple of weeks ago on relational, toleration, relational intelligence and the generation gaps. But we're seeing in the U.S., the things that are important to millennials or Gen Z employees are very different to Gen X or baby boomers. And so I don't know if that's just a U.S. centric thing, but it's, it's caused a lot of people wanting to reevaluate their purpose and their calling and the reason why they do work beyond just the company incentives that they get. So in your research, I want to check two things because it's quite interesting to me. Yeah. The first one is, are people leaving because of their bosses or because they just realized they were cooped up for two years and they want to live life? So that's the first question. Sure. And the second one is, can they afford to do what they're doing now? Or is it just a phase that will eventually disappear? When you say, uh, can they afford, can they afford to jump jobs or what do you say? Well, people are traveling a lot more. I've looked at the prices for resorts and so on. It's astronomical. Uh, and it's fully booked yeah. months in advance. Yeah. So who can afford that? Yeah, yeah. So to answer your first question, what our research has shown is that um, people are in fact leaving their jobs because of poor relationships with their managers. We have another client right now that I'm working in, and there's a great exodus going on in the company right now in their manufacturing division because the leader there is a micromanager, top-down, authoritative, leads with an iron fist, and they have had. I'm coaching that senior executive now. Um, on really trying to reestablish the connections that he has with his people. And we're seeing this across industries. So it is more of a poor management practices, poor, bad, negative boss that's making a lot of these people leave. And I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're seeing around travel, at least in North America, um, you know, I don't know where people are getting the money to do that stuff, but people have options with different jobs. And, you know, a subject matter expertise is important but your ability to develop and lead people effectively is what is really critical, at least in the senior ranks now, to offset or mitigate um, why people are leaving. And it's one of the reasons why um, I wrote the book in 2020 and really, I really excited yeah. that it's coming out in a couple of weeks, because again, this skill set of relational intelligence enables people in senior level roles to build those connections, to retain their talent, to engage their talent, and to really bring the best out of their people. Yeah, I just wonder if, Everything you're saying makes sense. I completely agree with it. Yeah. And I'm sure if you look at any trend, there's a small group who's thought about this rationally and are doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. yeah. And everyone jumps in. And I wonder, because if you look at credit card spending is going up, savings rates are going down. There are a lot of signs that this is not sustainable. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering what's going to come next. Is there going to be some kind of reset? And I don't know the answer. I think nobody knows. We just got to work through these things, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, we're seeing in the u.s i mean i don't know when you put a car where are you based in the world are you in europe i know i'm based in toronto but i'm right now in california gotcha okay yeah so i know two two big factors kind of with the american u.s economy you have the um cars right now you, you can't buy a car in the u.s there's you almost it took me six months to even get yeah. my car because of the micro shortage but yeah. real estate in the united states the housing prices it's a seller's market right now 
I have some colleagues who were looking to purchase a house in New York several months ago. The asking price, people were overbidding $150,000, wow. um, because everyone was looking for these purchases. So I agree with you. We're going to come to an influx point where there's going to have to be a resetting um, across the board. I think in terms of just personally, professionally, the way people view money and things, I think the pandemic kind of put a freeze or a pause on people traveling and on people spending. And now there's kind of a great, you know, engagement around that stuff. But I think there'll be a reset at some point in the future. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Well, thank you, Adam. I really enjoyed the conversation. Is there anything you want to add to our listeners before we wrap up? Um, you know, I think the big thing that a lot of people have asked me as I've started to talk about relational intelligence is why is it important now? Why, why should it, what's the so what factor? Mm-hmm. And I think the three big things that we've seen, you know, coming out of the pandemic primarily now, um, most of the companies, at least in the United States, are going into a hybrid work model where people are in the office two or three days, but people have lost the art of human connection. Um, of being in the same room. A lot of the things we talked about today around establishing rapport and understanding others, you cannot do that. We're on a Zoom right now. We're not even in the same room looking at each other's eyes. So it's just the human element that's lost. And so relational intelligence is a framework for people to be intentional and authentic about how they rebuild relationships. Um, The second thing that we've seen here in the US is this idea of diversity and equity inclusion that was pushed forward on based on social justice in 2020, uh, inclusive cultures are really important now to retain talent. And so relational intelligence, specifically the skill around embracing individual differences is really critical. And then I think the third piece that we've talked about already, at least in the US, this idea of the great resignation, the great realignment, um, leaders need to find ways to engage and retain their talent. And I think relational intelligence being Um, intentional about how you build relationships with your people and your teams and your organization is one of the key ways to really engage your workforce. And our research has backed and shown that as well. And building on that great point is I would say that to be good at relationships, you need to value it. That's right. You're right. What we have found in our research is that anyone can learn. These are skills. These are not personality traits. These are skills that you can develop, but people who develop them quicker and more successfully are wired for connection. They have a value that's important to them around affiliation and around building relationships. So people who are more wired, and you can be an extrovert or introvert to be wired for connections. I'm actually writing an article right now on, um, you don't need to be an extrovert to possess strong relational intelligence. It's more about the wired for connection and wanting to have deep connections with people. And so I think leaders who have that desire to have connection um, build stronger relationships. But even if connection is not important to you, you can practice these skills and still be successful in impacting and influencing others. Excellent, Adam. I look forward to reading your article. Thank you for being on the show. Take care. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Ciao. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.